turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. As you're turning there, it's appropriate on Easter Sunday for me to say in a greeting, He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. And what happens with that is that, where that comes from actually is, it was in the early church that it was a way to identify one another as Christians. It was under threat of even death that you could be uh, arrested. And so they would find someone, if they, if they suspected they might be a believer, they would say, he is risen. And if the response was, he is risen indeed, then they knew they had this connection and could fellowship. But many people were actually uh, trapped by that, where the Romans began getting onto this and would say that, and they would entrap Christians who believed that Jesus was was alive and arrest them. So it's a long and storied uh, history behind that. But understand, it's really not grammatically the best way to say that. I mean, shouldn't we really say he has risen? Why, why is it he is risen? Because he has risen points to the fact that he rose. He is risen points to the fact that he's still alive. So the grammar actually makes sense when you understand what's going on. Well, it's the conclusion of New Testament scholars Andreas Kostenberger and Justin Taylor that Jesus of Nazareth was executed by crucifixion on April the 3rd, A.D. 33. While other dates are possible, one thing that is certain is that Jesus' life and crucifixion are firmly rooted in human history. Equally anchored in history is the date April 5th, A.D. 33, when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we know this because he appeared to people after he was executed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, just listen, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What's interesting about that is the, the New Testament was just being written. The Old Testament doesn't say anything about being three days in, uh, in the grave and rising the third day. Paul is already at this point pointing to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as Scripture. At least Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which were circulated at this time. And that he appeared. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive till now, but some have died, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared to me also. Paul says, Jesus in the flesh, alive after execution, appeared to me. And I've been a pastor for preaching Easter sermons for about 34, 35 years. You never weary of texts to be able to talk about the resurrection. But let me be blunt and honest and say that there, there is no text that tells about the event. It happened with no cameras. It happened with no eyewitnesses. 
He rose from the grave. Now, you might say, well, how can we know what happened if all we have is an empty tomb? Because we don't only have an empty tomb. We have a Savior who appeared alive to people after he died. What happened in that cave, whether it was a a, a disrobing of those cloths or or a a wiping off of those burial spices, we, we don't know. We just know he was alive. I think it's fair to say that of all the people that Jesus appeared to, which had a dramatic effect, none made as big of an impact as his appearing to the Apostle Paul. In Acts 9, we read of Paul's conversion. Saul, at that point, he becomes Paul. And uh, he is on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. He had left Jerusalem with the commissioning of the high priests to go and take care of every Christian you can. If they name the name of Jesus as the Messiah, wipe them out, arrest them, kill them. On his way, Jesus appeared to him in the flesh. And not only them, but continued to appear to him afterwards as well. Now, as you move through the book of Acts, you, you actually find... Um, Paul having to defend himself. And specifically, he has six defenses. Four of them are major speeches. And this is his fifth defense in Acts chapter 26 before a man named Agrippa II, King Agrippa. He's been deferred or referred to Agrippa from Felix and from Festus because he's a Roman citizen. They didn't know what to do with him, so they kept bumping him and deferring him and uh, appealing him to, to a different and to a higher authority. Now, interestingly enough, and we don't have the time to trace this out, but Agrippa was coming from, uh, from the Mediterranean, landed at Caesarea Mamertine, or Caesarea by the sea. There was two Caesareas, Caesarea Philippi up north of, of uh, the Lake of Galilee and Caesarea by the sea. This is the one here. He shows up there at the exact precise time that Paul is being put on trial and Asked to give a defense for what he believes. The timing of this is not just a, consequ- just a, uh, a coincidence. It's perfect timing by the Lord. Paul never forgot the moment that he saw the living Savior on the road to Damascus. And we'll have a record of that in just a moment as he continues to go back to that event. Now, just a little background. Acts 26 contains the last and the longest of Paul's five testimony speeches. And his favorite thing to do when he's put on trial as the greatest theologian who ever lived is not to argue theology, is to say, let me tell you my testimony. I want to tell you what happened to me by Christ on the road to Damascus. It was incredible. Felix doesn't know what to do with Paul. Festus doesn't know what to do with Paul, these two leaders. Agrippa is just coming through and they throw him to Agrippa. A little bit about Agrippa. Um, he was the latest in the Herodian dynasty. He was Herod Agrippa II. You remember his great-grandfather as the one who killed and murdered all the children two years old and younger at the time of Jesus' nativity. His granduncle had murdered John the Baptist... And his father, Agrippa I, had executed James, imprisoned Peter, and then bragged about his greatness and fell over dead, was eaten by worms. 
Acts chapter 12 tells us. Along with him is this lady named Bernice. We're going to meet Bernice in a moment. She is with Agrippa. And again, I have less time than I can go into all this with you. This is a horrific situation. Bernice was actually Agrippa's, Herod Agrippa's sister. She was one year younger. They were living together in an incestuous relationship, being full-blooded siblings. Her conduct was so horrendous and so notorious that later when she became the wife or the mistress of, of Titus the emperor, Rome rejected her and had a massive outcry because even they as pagans understood how morally bankrupt she were. So this sick, sin-infested couple, Agrippa and Bernice, come off the ship and here awaits a trial they want him to oversee. Now, Agrippa was at least partially Jewish. You know, his great-grandfather had Idumean blood in him, was a half-breed. We don't know how, uh, how much uh, blood he had in him, but he was supposed to be an, familiar with and an expert in Jewish things and in Jewish law. So Festus is elated at the appearance of, of Agrippa. You can look at 25, verse 20, chapter 23, verse 25. Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with high-ranking officers and leading men of the city and commanded of, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Probably in this giant amphitheater. I've stood there. It's right by the sea. A beautiful uh, little um, archaeological find right by the Mediterranean. All I want to do is walk through this with you and find, and then as you marshal this, a significant verse that is of epic importance as regard to Jesus being alive from the dead. Verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, he's now giving a tribunal, you are permitted to speak for yourself. That was because he was a Roman. He didn't have to have a Roman council. He was able to give a defense for himself. Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all these things of which I am accused by the Jews, now stop right there. He was being accused of what? Believing that Jesus was alive from the dead and believing that Jesus was the Messiah. He was being accused of that. He says, regarding what I have been accused of, then he gets in into, into Agrippa's mind a little bit, Agrippa being the Jewish representation to Rome. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. You put all that together in a theological blender, and what he's saying is, I know you know something about the Old Testament. I know you know something about the law. I know you know something about Jewish customs. If you will give me enough time, I can make sense of what I teach and what I believe in reference to the Old Testament. Verse 4, so then all... Jews who know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they've known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I have lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. 
Paul, as he continues to give his testimony further and further in the book of Acts, gives different details every time, and we, we learn a lot about his biography. Here we learn something interesting. He grew up in Jerusalem, was trained by Gamaliel, we find out earlier in the book, in Jerusalem. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you might think if he grew up and was trained and ministered as a Pharisee in Jerusalem, where was he the last week of Jesus' life and at the crucifixion? It's one of the great mysteries of the Bible that we don't know. Surely he had heard of Jesus. The Pharisees had certainly had many discussions about Jesus. We don't know if he was on a pharisaical business trip that week. or We just don't know. But he seems to have not been there because he never references those trials or being a part of that. We also find out that he had quite a reputation. He was the child grown-up prodigy of Judaism. Everyone knew his reputation. He was the smart kid, the 4.0 guy, the guy who was zealous, the guy who would die for his faith. Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6 says, He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. If anyone would have ever been saved by keeping the law, it would have been him. Verse 6, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the Jewish fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. And they earnestly serve God, as they earnestly serve God, night and day. And for this hope... O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Now, at this point, if you're, like, if you're thinking like Agrippa, you're going, okay, fathers, Judaism, ancient, Old Testament, law, prophets, pro- promises, hope. What promise and what hope? Well, he tells you in verse 8, why is it considered incredible among you people? If God does raise the dead. There it is. Now we find out why Paul was on trial. Because he taught that Jesus rose from the dead. Now we find out what the hope of the Old Testament promise is. That we could rise from the dead. You say, how do you know that? Well, repeatedly in in the book of Acts, Paul and other apostles are, are talking about this promise of of the Old Testament prophets, even David himself, teaching of the coming possibility of resurrection to life and the certain possibility of resurrection to death without God. In Psalm 16, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, David says, and my heart rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You will not abandon my soul to death, to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. Same thing is said in Psalm 49, 15, and in 73, 24. Remember Job? Job 19, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. It's a prediction of Jesus, the Messiah's eternal life. Then he says this, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, and I myself will see him with my own eyes, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. 
But maybe the clearest passage is in Isaiah, verse, chapter 26, verse 19. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. Who dwelt in the dust, they will wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And then Daniel would say in Daniel 12 too, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, the dead, will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. There's the, the promise of heaven and the threat of hell even in the mouth of Daniel. So Paul can say, I am testifying to you about that hope. And what, what, are you surprised that God raises the dead? Don't you know what the Old Testament says? Your Hebrew Bible, can't you read it and discern it and apply it? Verse 9, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now he goes back to his testimony. This is all recorded in Acts chapter 8. And this is just what I did. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but, but also when they were being put to death... I cast my vote against them. There are many people who think, well, he's talking about Stephen here in Acts chapter 7. And no doubt he, he was. But not just Stephen. Would you notice that the verse is plural? When they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul had the blood of many Christians on his hands. as I punish them often in all the synagogues. We find out there, just a little historical footnote, that the early church was meeting in synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme, to deny their faith, and being furiously enraged, the Greek can't be any stronger, out of my mind angry at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. It wasn't enough just to persecute them there in Jerusalem. When I found out that they were fleeing to other cities, I followed them. So, verse 12 tells us, while so enraged or engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Please don't miss the next two words, at midday, really important, at midday, where is the sun in the middle of the day? Straight up, where is the sun the brightest during a day? Midday. At midday, he makes notes several times in the book of Acts when he's, when he's recovering his testimony, recalling his testimony, it happened in the middle of the day. Why is that important? O king, Agrippa, I saw on the road, on the way, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Why would he say that? He sees this light and compares it to looking at the sun, and the light is brighter. Remember what John the Apostle says in Revelation 1.17? I saw him, I fell down as a dead man because he was brighter than the sun. I don't recommend this, but we've all taken a glance at the sun. It's too intense to continue looking at. 
If Jesus was brighter than that, we would expect what happens next. It was shining all around me. It was shining around those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, of course, he wasn't looking, but he heard. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Lord, who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, we often go to this text to say to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. Wonderful theology. Don't miss the obvious. Dead men don't appear and speak. Do you think Paul was shocked? Not only that it was Jesus, but it was that Jesus was alive, that it was Jesus. He knew he had died. Everyone knew. There was a grand conspiracy to try to put it under wraps by the government. And here is Jesus, brighter than the sun, speaking to him, appearing to him. So he commissions him, verse 16, get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you. Why have you appeared to Paul, Lord? To appoint Paul, Saul at the time, a minister and as a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also to the things which I will appear, in which I will appear to you. This was not going to be a one-time occurrence for, for Saul. He was going to have a relationship with him and have this ongoing pedagogical teaching relationship with the living, resurrected Jesus rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from the darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's his commissioning. Now, now he goes straight to the commissioning words of Jesus. It's a it's a very familiar formula. If you look in the, in the prophets, Ezekiel 2, Jeremiah 1, Isaiah 42, you see that prophetic calls were very common and they sound a lot like this one. It's interesting, though, the dualities that play back and forth in these few verses. Get up, stand on your feet. I appear to you, I appoint you. You as a servant and a witness. What you've seen, I will show you. You're rescued from the Jews. You're to rescue from the Gentiles. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins, to, place, to receive a place among those who are sanctified. It's a grand commissioning. This is who you are to be and what you are to do because you've seen that I am not dead. I am very much alive. How much alive? He can't even look at him. He's so bright. Verse 19. So, King Agrippa, back to addressing the king. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly wisdom, vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout the whole region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In other words, if you're going to believe in a living, resurrected Savior, act like it. If you have a relationship with him, it has a dramatic effect on you. 
performing deeds appropriate to repentance. He's saved on the way to Damascus. They go in. There's a, we don't have time for the story. He's blinded by what he saw. Literally, fleshly scales were on his eyes, and finally those fall off, and he's commissioned. And he leaves Damascus out the window, remember, through a basket to escape the Jews. And it tells us that he, he kept going into synagogues even though that he wanted to, the Lord wanted him to go to Gentiles. And when he was going to synagogues, they, uh, they were afraid of him. Can, can you wonder why? I mean, here's Saul, the killer of Christians, and he's come to our worship service. Hi. I mean, well, how do you greet this man? For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So, verse 22, having obtained help from God, I stand, to this, stand this day testifying both to small and great, the normal people and you, Agrippa and Bernice, stating nothing but what the prophets of Moses, was, uh, Moses said was going to take place, that, here's the gospel, that the Christ was to suffer. That's Isaiah 53. And that, this is, this is the reason for Paul's speech and the reason for me choosing this text today. Verse 23. That by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. The resurrection, according to Romans 1.4 is what declared Jesus, the Son of God, who can now, with absolute credentials of divine interaction and divine approval, tell the nations how they can be right with God. That the Christ must suffer. Just a few days ago, we celebrated the Lord's death at Good Friday. I love what John Stott says. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. It was our sin that made him suffer and his life that gives us hope. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. How important is the resurrection to the gospel? Take it away and you have no good news. Take it away and you have no hope. Take it away, take it away and you have nothing to offer for people to be saved by. Verse 24, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus, that conniver, he says in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You are, your great learning, it's driven you mad. You ever have a kid, if you're a parent, who, who says something to his brother or sister, but what he's saying to them, obviously he wants them to hear it, but he wants you as the parent to hear him saying that to, to them. You, you know that, that ploy? I think Festus was saying this so that Agrippa could hear it. Since he said it in a loud voice, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. You're teaching that Jesus is alive. We saw him executed. Paul said, ah, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. He's gracious to him. But I utter words of sober, gravitas, truth, heavy things. 
Then he looks back away from Festus to Herod Agrippa. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence. In other words, open your scroll and check my theology. Since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for he has, this has not been done in a corner. Look, this, this is public. Not only is what Jesus did and suffered and bled and died public, his resurrection has been witnessed by 500 at one time, me personally, multiple people who will give testimony that he's alive. And if you look at the Old Testament, if you want to go tango on theology, Paul says we can do that. Open up your scroll. Let's, let's go. We, we can talk about the hope that's predicted in the Older Testament about the resurrection. And so he says, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. I love verse 28. Verse, 20, verse 28, verse 28. Before we look at this, Paul wants to, he's already appealed to Rome, right? He knows he's going to Rome. He wants to get to Rome. And yet, he's not giving this speech so he can get there. He's giving this speech to evangelize Agrippa and the people who would hear it. Look at Agrippa's response in verse 28. He replied to Paul, "Um, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. You had to wonder what eye uh, uh, glances were given between Festus and Agrippa at this point. And Paul said, I wish to God, I would wish that to God, that whether in a short or long time, that not only you, but everyone here, all those who hear me today, that, that they might come to become such as I, except for these chains. I hope you all become Christians, but you don't have to go to Rome and die. He was giving his defense not to try to get out of trouble. He was giving his defense to evangelize the lost. The king stood up, and the governor, Festus, and Bernice, and the royal court, those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, probably back in the bowels of this this amphitheater, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or, or even to be in prison. Agrippa would like to let him go. And then we find this out, verse 32. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free. Who is that by? He was the one who had the, the, the power and the authority to do that. He might have been set free. I might have freed him if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul was not trying to get out of prison. He was trying to get into Rome to preach the gospel. And after this, he has a a bit of a journey to get there. Shipwreck, snake bit. It's another sermon. Agrippa says, well, I don't know what to do. I guess he's going to Rome. I don't, 
I, I can't, I don't see anything he's wor- worthy to be imprisoned or to die for. Which means that, means that Agrippa had at least enough Old Testament knowledge to know that, that it was proven true and at least enough knowledge of Paul that he could trust him. I don't know what happened to Agrippa. Text doesn't tell us. Or, or Bernice or Festus or Felix or the royal court or the people who had gathered to hear. I don't, don't know. The text doesn't inform us what happened, but it does inform us that Paul was faithful to give his testimony, and his testimony included that he had a living and vital relationship with Jesus of Nazareth, who's no longer in the grave, no longer dead, but is alive. He says, by reason of the resurrection, that's our reasoning power as a Christian. That's what we have. We can't go back and preach or talk or study the resurrection itself, only the results. We don't know what happened in that grave. We just know it was empty. An angel sat on the rock, gave some instructions, and then Jesus shows up. And by the way, he also disappears sometimes without any way of figuring out how he got into or out of the room. And so it falls to us to ask this. Do we believe in the resurrection? And if you do, so what? Some people think that the resurrection of Jesus did not happen. I don't think that's nearly as bad as Christians who think that it happened, but it doesn't matter. Love Easter Sunday. He's risen, he's risen indeed. Love singing these songs. Love the joy that flows from the dark moment on Friday night at that Good Friday celebration of his death to the fact that he didn't stop. Love that. But if it just stays as a, as a song we sing joyfully, as a, a greeting we give occasionally, if it, if it doesn't have an impact on our life, so what? Are we any better than those who don't believe it? Paul told the Ephesians that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power, think about this, that he allots to the lives of believers who want to fight sin. That's, that's from, from death to life power. Surely, I love the King James and the Lazarus story, surely he reeketh by now, Lord, Lazarus didn't decay that time. He rose from the grave, and he offers us the same. Let me just say, listen, friends, let me just beg you. The resurrection is the central focus of the gospel. Paul said, Aaron referred to it earlier, if we believe in the cross and not the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, people ought to feel sorry for us. We are all meant to be pitied. Why would we want to live holy, sinless lives if Jesus isn't alive. It makes no sense. Feel sorry for us. Do you believe he's alive? And if you do, do you believe that it matters? I hope that's a question that you can bounce around this afternoon when we're celebrating. We don't worship a dead man. Muhammad, dead. Buddha, 
dead. Confucius, dead. Jesus, alive. 